Welcome to episode 23 of Tall Poppy, where we look at leadership from a different angle. Today I speak with David Holzmer, an organizational behavior specialist and consultant. He shares critical insights from his PhD research that helps us make sense of ongoing disruption and the keys to dealing with the ambiguity and complexity of today's world. I honestly don't remember how I originally connected with David. It was several years ago now, but one day, I think it was last year, I got a notification that he was streaming live on Periscope talking about his research findings on disruption, and I decided to check it out. Our conversations from there led to this interview, and it's one I've been looking forward to sharing with you even before it happened. Based on what I'd read and heard from him, I knew it was going to be a great interview. I love how we get into the historical context of our worldview and mindset and what's shifting in humanity. As you know, if you're a regular listener, this is the stuff that fuels me. It's really clear to me that so many organizations can benefit from David's work, regardless of the sector that they're in. There's so much change going on, and he's really done the thinking about this stuff. He's talked to organizations that deal well with ongoing disruption, and now you get to hear what it takes. And you also get to hear about his own sense-making process and the role that social media played with that. Have a listen. All right, I'm here with David Holzmer, and um, welcome to Tall Poppy, David. Tathra, thanks so much for asking me to join you. So I have this image of you walking along Cape May and showing us these epic Victorian houses and talking about innovation and disruption. And that was the first time I'd really actually seen you, although I'd um, connected with you and your work a little bit before. But um, tell me a little bit about, um, about where you live and, uh, and what you do. Sure. Hi. Okay. I am. Um, I live, uh, as you said, in Cape May, New Jersey. That's in the, um, you can probably tell by my uh, accent that I'm um, American. I'm on the East Coast, and uh, New Jersey is a uh, long, narrow state. And at the very bottom is a peninsula, and I am at the very southern tip of that peninsula. So I'm surrounded by water on uh, three sides. Um, what I do here is uh, a number of things. Actually, I've got several lives going on at once, and um, I am in the process now of developing a consulting practice, um, working with uh, organizations and who are um, interested in examining uh, the behavioral dynamics that impede in innovation. So that's part of what I do. Um, in addition, I am. Uh, working as a behaviorist right now. Uh, I look at human behavior in different systems and how those systems, those organizational or living systems uh, impact and influence um, human behavior and vice versa, how the behavior influences the environment. Um, and is that with the Taos Institute? That's, it's a little bit of both. I mean, that's, you know, um, my, my uh, consulting work is an outreach of my uh, PhD research. Um, and I looked into the, the topic there was um, sense making uh, in conditions of disruption, how people made sense of disruptive or highly ambiguous uh, situations. So Excellent. I'm um, looking forward to talking about that. Oh, good, good, good. Um, so the Taos Institute was an outgrowth of my PhD research and particularly my interest in the notion that our sense of reality is socially constructed. We really kind of create or forge what we think of as reality on a moment by moment basis through human engagement. Um, but I just wanted to, to also say this, um, is back to the, uh, it's funny cause going back to the, uh, walking down the beach and you, you described it in such elegant cinematic terms. And, um, <laughs> I, uh, at the time I was doing those periscopes really to make sense of what was going on in my, uh, PhD research. I was finishing my PhD research at that time. And if anybody's mm -hmm. ever been through that process, you know, it is a, my brother's going through it at the moment. Yeah. And I've, I've had a few friends that have gone through the process. So, you know, it can be like, um, it can be a very, to put it, you know, mildly, it's a very arduous process. Mm -hmm. Um, I can imagine. 
Yeah. I love and that you used social media to, to, yeah, to make sense of it. So, so tell me a little bit about, um, about, you know, how and what you use Periscope for, because I think it's one of those ones that, um, you know, it, it was a great idea at the time. And then Facebook started using um, live video. And um, so, so, yeah, tell me a little bit about what, because some people might not know, know what Periscope is. So can you say a little bit about it? Sure. Periscope is a live streaming format that allows me, much like um, Facebook, and Facebook has something similar to, but Periscope allows me to uh, record live video and audio through my cell phone, and uh, it is broadcast through a network that reaches around the world um, instantaneously. Um, and one of the reasons that I was um, using Periscope at that time was that um, because I live here in Cape May, uh, the community or the, the group of people, there's, there's not a big group of people or big community here for talking about uh, my research and um, what I'm working on and what I'm finding. And I was in this place, especially late in the research process, where what I was finding was not what I had expected to find. And it wasn't always making a lot of sense to me. And I found a lot of um, guidance and affirmation at times by sharing what I was going through and what I was discovering on social media. It really connected me to uh, a community of like-minded thinkers, people like yourself, uh, people who really sense that there is um, not just a, a, a significant number of changes, but that those changes that are going on in the world are of um, a profound, um, fundamental nature about um, how we perceive the world and how we interact with each other. And what I've found is that social media has um, done two things for me. It's given me a platform to discuss that and share that, but I think even more importantly for me, it's put me in connection with a growing community of people who feel the same sort of reverberation going on at the same time and are um, kind of actively engaged on a moment-by-moment -moment basis of figuring out exactly what it is and where it's going. So that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about social media is it's really created this, right, it's really created this kind of collective um, uh, sense-making process. I'm sorry? Uh, I, th I thought the word um, intelligence, I, I like to think of yes. collective intelligence in, in, yes. in any kind of group work. And, and as a facilitator, I often have that when I'm working with people in a room, but I'm thinking of it in the sense of, you know, connecting to people around the world that have, uh, you know, a, a way to make sense of these big sort of complex issues that we're dealing with as times change. I think so. And that gets to one of, and I'll, I'll talk about my research later on. Um, but one of the things that I think is really important, this was a sort of a foundational understanding that underscored my research is where we are. And one of the reasons that I think that things are shifting so radically right now is that we are really coming out of um, about a 450 year, 500 year um, cycle of understanding of ourselves and the world around us based on enlightenment era thought when we go back to people like Descartes and uh, Newton and um, you know enlightenment philosophers um, a lot of that thinking was based on the notion that there is one empirical fixed reality and the job of science was to really discover that reality and share it with mankind so that our um, thinking and institutions, um, particularly businesses and organizations and universities, could be centered in a consistent catalog of thought. And none of that is necessarily going away now, but I think what we're seeing is the emergence of this 
uh, additional layer of, of reality or perception that's emerging um, on top of that because what we're finding now is that change is happening um, so fast and the change that is happening it's not just fast but it's often highly ambiguous and the only way to make sense of it is um, on a person-by-person -person basis, because there's actually multiple realities going on at once. And, and I think that can be really, um, uh, what's the word? I think it can be really disturbing for people to try and navigate from this very kind of simplistic, well, what appears to us as simplistic now, view of the world to one that, that can uh, embrace the multiplicity of reality. So can, can you say a little bit about what you, what you notice in terms of people's response to being able to deal with how reality is constructed these days? Well, there's a tremendous amount of anxiety around that. I mean, I, and I think if you look at our institutions right now, just to digress for a second, one of the things that I think happens a lot during times of high or deep transition like this is you have um, two very different types of reactions. Um, you have uh, sort of an excitement and an exploratory type of response, such as what you and I are um, talking about. And at the very same time, you have a tremendous amount of um, fear and anxiety going on about um, how things are changing or how the old ways are going away. And of course, um, now, especially in America, um, over the last uh, couple of years, and we, we see this with um, the recent presidential election and just the very na notion of this idea of making America great again. What that speaks to is a deep dissatisfaction or a deep anxiety about all the change and all the transformation that's happening right now and the ambiguity that is inherent in that transformation. And the response is, let's, let's back away from this and get back to a time when things were simpler, more concrete, more linear. Um, that's why I think you find people responding so passionately to this very simplistic rhetoric. But the reality is, I think what we're finding is that things are getting more complex and they are getting more ambiguous. And one of the things that's exciting for me, I think, as a, as a researcher and explorer of all this, is that it's shifting, um, what we anchor ourselves in is shifting away from this notion of empirical reality and shifting towards relationship. So that, Fantastic. so that hard science, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, I do believe that, you know, hard science isn't going anywhere. I mean, as a, as a PhD researcher, I was trained um, on empirical research techniques, and I still mm -hmm. feel that there is tremendous value in those techniques and tremendous value on science rooted in empirical thinking. But I think we're also recognizing that it's no longer the be-all and the end-all because that empirical reality is now coinciding and interweaving with a social relational reality that really underscores sort of a new way of being in the world and connecting with one another. Fantastic. Oh, such music to my ears. I love it. And I want to get into your research in a moment, but I, I, one of the things that I'm noticing about this emergence of different ways of seeing reality is a polarization and perhaps a lack of, I don't know, respect or understanding between the two. And um, I mean, to me, it's, it's obvious that what's missing is compassion. And I know that's a lot easier to, to say than it is to, you know, to do anything about. But um, I'm curious about what you see there. Well, um, one of the things that um, I'm working on now in my work is synthesizing a lot of different strands of thought that came up during my PhD research. And so I'm talking about this 
um, ev this historical evolution that we see that's going on. I mean, I, I mentioned the Renaissance, but when you kind of trace the trajectories back, we're really looking at a pattern of human behavior that's been evolving and ebbing and flowing since our hunter-gatherer times. Um, but I think what's happening in addition to that, in addition to um, that kind of historical evolution and trajectory, there's also um, a cognitive relational uh, trajectory or evolution going on. And it has to do fundamentally with how we relate to one another. And Tathra, it gets to your point about the lack of respect and understanding, because um, about 30 years ago, there started to be this uh, emerging field in psychology that had to do with adult human development because and it and this actually relates directly to the expansion that's going on with human beings right now because up until about 30 years ago it was believed that when you hit um, basically adulthood 18 years of age your psychological development pretty much plateaued and you were an adult and you had the mindset of an adult and that's what carried you through the next 40, 50, 60 years, whatever. Pretty but fixed view, isn't it? it? Right. It's a very fixed view. And particularly um, the work of um, Harvard psychologist Robert Keegan, he started to introduce the notion into um, the mainstream um, psychological literature, psychology literature, that there are higher stages of or more complex stages of adult development. And the key thing that underscores those higher stages is here's here's the kicker, how we deal with difference. And it gets back ah. to see, that's why I kind of went into this lengthy explanation of it, because yeah, what's really happening in addition, not only our our. Um, institutions and our um, habits and uh, traditions really um, morphing towards a more diverse view, really our underlying psychological development is moving away from this stage or this, this mindset where stability, permanence, and um, similarity are um, anchoring realities for us. And we are kind of starting to transition to a place where we start to see that um, difference and diversity and um, an integration and an interweaving of ideas and influences is where our real strength lies. So one of the mm -hmm. things that you're seeing when you're talking about this lack of respect and understanding, one of the things we we see is if you want to just for a second shift to um, like a political framework, um, you see here's what's interesting and here's where we're really going to have some challenges coming up because on on uh, you know the left of course you have uh, the conservatives with um, uh, a very kind of hard fixed fundamentalist view of yes let's you know let's make America great again and um, on the left um, you have um, the liberals and in our country the Democrats who um, are and very country, much... Liberals are conservative, so it's a bit confusing, but I think it's, it, the idea comes across anyways. Right. Exactly. exactly. And so, which is more open and um, diverse. However, um, in some ways, those parties are very similar in that when you look at sort of the... Um, polarization that is going on between them, you know, like um, the the uh, Republicans are, you know, um, they say they believe in people, um, but they don't believe in, they have a hard time believing in like the liberals, you know, like the liberals are the pariah. However, when you turn to the liberals, what you see is that the conservatives are the pariah. So in a sense, even though liberals are, they tend to favor um, a more diverse uh, uh, 
way of approaching life, what you find is an underlying polarization. And what's happening now with um, our development, psychological development, is you see kind of a much higher kind of integrated type of plurality starting to develop so that there's not this deep polarization. I feel like I went all over the place. Yeah, no, that's great. So so what I'm hearing you say is that there's um, an emerging uh, valuing of diversity. Yes. Yet, and and the, the, the term that comes to mind is, is in my activist days, we used to talk about the idea that no one knows how to oppress better than the oppressed. And so as we sort of eke out of this, um, you know, uh, very, um, you know, whether it's monotheistic or, um, you know, one way of seeing the reality of the world, um, you know, moving out of that, we, we're st- we still don't have the skills yet to be able to, um, to be open and compassionate to our adversaries. That is exactly right. You actually, you said it far more succinctly than I did, but yes, that's well, exactly that's the joy right. Well, being on this side of it is that I can hear what you're saying and synthesize it. <laughs> okay, well, good. Well, thank you. Um, but that is so, and I, I, I'm, I'm tempted to go down that path for probably for another two hours but I, w- I would like to shift into um, your research can you talk a little bit about um, the types of organizations that you were um, researching and and a little bit about uh, what you were finding what I did was I wanted to I was interested in studying um I was always drawn to uh, the messiness that goes on in organizations. That's the stuff that always intrigued me, which actually um, often put me at odds with traditional management and leadership stuff. I can imagine. They don't want to see that messiness. They're like, there's no messiness. There's no messiness here. It's all fine. Please, (laughs) just don't, please, just don't look behind the curtain. Um, (laughs) Exactly. So um, I can imagine how challenging that would have been to actually get people to go, oh, yeah, here, check out this, you know, all the stuff we've swept under the rug and what's behind the curtain. That is exactly right. And, um, but I was very interested in that and particularly what I got interested in as um, looking at what's going on in the world, just the notion of disruption. And um, obviously disruption is a hot topic, um, but I'm also very interested in how people deal with disruption and in particular, how people were able to Uh, get the job done, move forward, and come together when they're in conditions of chaos. So what I ended up looking at is this notion of sense-making, which is quite literally the ability to, or the capacity to make sense of conditions or events that are highly ambiguous or uncertain. And so what I wanted to do in my research was study organizations that had a high level of this uncertainty. So I started looking at um, social service organizations, um, caregiving organizations, where there's sort of an underlying uh, chaos um, in those organizations because you're very, you're very often dealing and serving um, with uh, people who may be considered at the edges of society, um, highly vulnerable individuals or at-risk groups. Um, these uh, Typically, you're dealing with individuals and providing support for individuals who have a lot of disruption in their own lives. Mm. Anyway, what I wanted to do is I wanted to look at how I ended up looking at how managers make sense of conditions of disruptive change. And um, through that research, I started, um, I did a series of interviews in caregiving organizations. And it's interesting um, what I found because I was really looking very basically, I wasn't looking at specific techniques. I was really, because the research there is almost non-existent. And so what I'm starting what I started out doing was working on a very basic level. I was most interested in just seeing what was their experience, what kind of frameworks and what kind of um, beliefs and uh, reactions, responses would be kicked up during this process. And um, what I found was very interesting. And again, uh, going back to this notion of sense-making, um, I, what I found was that I want, let me say this, when I started out in the research, I assumed 
that what I would find is people would describe to me a disruptive event and the steps that they went through in order to make sense of that disruptive event and then take meaningful action. And I did find a little bit of that, but what I found more so, which was very intriguing to me, was that this notion of sense-making wasn't um, as much an episodic experience as it was long-term and relational. What I mean by that is that when I, when I asked people about how are you making sense of this, what they would start to talk about very quickly were how they nurtured certain types of relationships with people around them. Specifically, the managers would talk about how they developed certain relationships and, and communication styles within their teams so that when disruption happened, there was a way of interacting with one another that was that promoted um, the quick, efficient uh, ability to make sense of things, develop courses of action, and move on. And one of the things that I found was critical is, and this surprised me because I didn't expect it, was the notion of this, this um, phenomenon called psychological safety. Um, which is something that um, a Harvard researcher, Amy Edmondson, I believe, is the one who popularized the term. And it has to do with the notion that in a, in a social situation, we are psychologically safe when we feel the when we feel comfortable expressing ourselves, making mistakes and being vulnerable. And what I found, I'm sorry. I just said I, I love it. That's that's great. That's stuff that I'm I'm very very interested in because to me that I think about the the concept of powerful vulnerability, and when we can be courageous and that that is powerful, and it, it's moving and it's the it's the lifeblood of intimacy which forms the bonds of relationships. I'm a big fan of of Brene Brown's work, and so that that's sort of where. I mean, I guess it's also coming from my own work as a facilitator and working in, in groups and doing work around making sure that people feel safe so that they can speak up. Um, so, yeah, I, I love hearing about um, that, that this is the, one of the things that's actually come out of your research. What I found was, yeah, and so we're so in tune because um, I started thinking about Brene Brown as well and the notion of vulnerability. And one of the things, and, and you mentioned um, a few minutes ago, you were you were sort of making a joke, but you really got to a very profound point. And when I said um, I wasn't really comfortable with traditional approaches to management, and uh, you know, we joked a little bit about that, but the truth of the matter is. Um, relationships in organizational settings have typically been seen as um, um, a peripheral phenomenon, something that is better dealt with um, by the HR department than the managers. The managers are very, and, and it also gets to the role of leadership because managers and leaders, they're very much, um, they've been schooled to think in terms of the bottom line. But what we're finding is that this world, this volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world that um, all of us, especially our organizations, are starting to work with now, it's demanding a different type of skill set from managers, this idea that um, psychological safety and vulnerability are core to the capacity to make sense of highly ambiguous, uncertain situations and develop shared understandings that allow collective action. And one of the things that I found is that when you're doing this, this is, again, the difference between this Enlightenment era thought or this what I would call a mechanistic view of organizations yeah. versus a contemporary complex view of organizations. In a mechanistic view, it's very formulaic. There's one way to deal with a particular problem and you, you have a solution, almost like a cake recipe from beginning to end. That's not possible in all That's mostly not possible, I should say. And um, when you're dealing with complex, ambiguous problems, because what you typically have to do is you have to feel 
your way one step at a time. Make sense of it. Develop an action plan that allows you to take one step or maybe just several small steps. Then come back and reassess as you go. Yeah. and adapt as you go and mm-hmm. connect and make sense as you go, which is, again, it speaks to the inherently social aspect and re- not just social, but relational aspect. And I, and I, I make that difference because between social and relational, because I think it's critical social just to me infers, um, the, the collective experience, you know, social media, we come together collectively relational talks about the qualities underscoring, those that social experience so you wouldn't at least in my thinking you you wouldn't necessarily think of psychological safety as being something that would um, have a lot of relevance in um, a social situation or like for for quote-unquote social media psychological safety actually there's Depending on what I see on Facebook these days, there's not a lot of so- psychological safety and social media sometimes. But but Absolutely. just to, yeah, but just to flip back for a second, psychological safety is a critical factor in um, relational engagement. If that engagement is supposed to be effective, and again, what we are seeing is that. If we're shifting away from traditional hierarchical structures and relationships towards more fluid network relational structures, this notion of psychological safety is going to be critical moving forward. Absolutely. Wow. It's music to my ears with this as well. It's, I'm thinking about, um, you know, I've, I've written a book about what I'm, I'm referring to as human-centered leadership. And, and, you know, a few people recently have kind of challenged me around that, that um, way of referring to it. And I'm, um, as I'm hearing you make the distinction between social and relational leadership, I, I, f- I feel like there's a few more nuances coming out there. Because what I've really focused on is what are the, th- the skills and mindsets that are going to have us thrive into the future. And for me, it's very much about the, the social, the relational, the, and, but also the, you know, being able to be with uncertainty, the flexibility, the resilience, and all that sorts of thing. So I'm, I'm actually starting to cook up some potential collaborations in my mind, but we can talk about that another time. Um, so, so, you know, t- tell me a little bit more about, I mean, when I think of so- psychological safety, I think of it in terms of, like I said, in my experience as a facilitator and working with groups, but you're talking about a sense of psychological safety within the workplace on an ongoing basis as a sort of um, a foundation for being able to um, navigate uh, disruption. So how, what kind of practices did you see where psychological safety was um, happening successfully in organizations? Let me give you an example, just to, in one instance. And I'm thinking about a woman that I interviewed who talked about, um, we, we talked about disruption in the workplace. And we talked about, because um, I asked her basically then, I said, how does this notion of feeling safe or comfortable with your supervisors play out? And she talked about um, a uh, medical mishap that happened with a resident um, very early in the morning, like like 2.30 in the morning or something like that. And one of the things that she said made the difference is that she knew immediately when it happened that she did not have to go it alone in trying to figure out what was going on because she felt comfortable enough with her supervisor that it was not a question. Um, She immediately picked up the phone and called that supervisor who was an administrator, clued them into the situation, and um, together they collaborated on a solution. There was no, and, and I don't know about you, but I've worked in settings where Calling a supervisor at and waking them up at 2.30 in the morning, there have been work situations I've been in where that could be a par- very perilous move. But just the it fact... It sounds like a call you'd want to make. It's not a call you want to make or you'd have a lot of trepidations or you would be feeling, and especially in situations like this... 
you would be feeling very trepidatious about how you phrase things, how you frame them, how you framed your own interactions or performance. And one of the things that I found in these teams where there was high psychological safety was that they did not have to live with sort of this layer of performance anxiety in order to look good, look knowledgeable, um, be on top of their game, um, because there was a comfort and an ease and an acceptance that transcended um, hierarchical boundaries. Um, it sounds like what the, and, and this is something that I talk about in my work as well, is that there's a, without that layer of trust, there's nothing. And it sounds like there's high levels of trust, that they trust that it's going to be okay if you make a mistake or if, or if something goes wrong. And so being able to make that call, you know that that's what you need to do. Um, and you trust that the person isn't going to get, you know, upset with you for, for what happened. I think you're exactly right. And I would say that one of the things that characterized the organizations that um, worked uh, well with psychological safety, besides, of course, they were more resilient, was that there was a tremendous level of mistake tolerance. Oh, wow. On the one hand, you would think that this would undermine effectiveness. But what I found in my research is that it was just the opposite, is that when there was mis- when it was a culture of mistake tolerance, there was um, an openness and a fluidity in the interactions and in the problem-solving processes so that people were more able to access their creativity and intuition. And as a result, more innovative, effective solutions emerged. Fantastic. That was, as, as I was listening to you talk about that as far as mistake tolerance goes, I was thinking, well, that's exactly what's needed for innovation. So, yeah. So can you say a little bit more about what kind of correlations? You, did you see a, a relationship between um, innovative solutions and um, mistake tolerant environments? Well, because what what you find is that traditionally, and again, because remember, we're going, we're moving away from a world where um, fixed formulaic solutions are the, um, you know, are, are kind of the go-to tool. We're moving out of that world where, and in sense making, what you're really doing is Rescripting the, the the rules of interaction and engagement on a moment by moment basis, you're actually creating new thought and new knowledge. So what you're having to do, you're 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 basically riding the waves of um, ideas and um, influences, and um, so you're pulling from a number of different places. So you need to be almost like a child. What I found in these organizations was there was a, um, not childish, but a childlike um, capacity uh, em- embracing of the unknown, of the um, kind of inventing or, or um, jury rigging solutions. And in that jury rigging, what people would find is not just a a temporary solution, but they would open up whole new avenues of of thought and problem solving and new ways of approaching um, the uncertainty that they were dealing with on a daily basis. And, And it was ongoing and it was just, it continued to build upon itself. So it was almost like um, I've heard somebody describe it. It's 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 much more like a jazz ensemble than a, a symphony orchestra. So that's you, a great analogy. You have this improvisation going on, and what you find then is that there tends to be just like in a jazz ensemble or in a you know a, a star basketball team, you find this ability, this trust. You know. You, you know you can take that shot because or you know you can pass that ball because even though the guy is not standing there right at that moment, you know he's going to be when the ball reaches that mm-hmm. space. And so there's that kind of that kind of intuitive, collaborative um, type of um, intuition 
that goes mm. on. And, and again, that... think of um, Link by Malcolm Gladwell. It's yes. that sort of momentary cognition that is just split second. You just don't think, you just know. Which also speaks to something else, because we talked about trust and safety and that kind of intuitive sense. What we're really looking at, because part of the, the, the foundational research that I did when I started looking, when I started doing this research was um, I, I went back and I looked at the, the literature of um, knowledge management. And oh, yeah. what, one of the things, and, and of course, knowledge management is a very big field, but one of the things that I found that really, again, excited me because it gets into sort of the dynamic kind of messy areas of, of organizational life is um, this shift we're going from uh, primary reliance upon ta um, explicit knowledge to a primary reliance on tacit knowledge, oh, wow. on, which, which again gets back to the notion of why trust is so important in the workplace, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. very often in that trust, there is um, a different intuitive language that will emerge between people. And one of the things I found, and, and what I mean by that is there, there is a knowing, there is a sense, there is an ability to read the environment and read the situation that um, transcends language, that transcends words, that transcends um, fixed concepts. And even after the fact, even even after um, the solution was in play, even even when a situation had been handled and calmed down, um, you often found that people could, in a general sense, explain how they were able to create the solution, but um, they really couldn't nail it down because because it was something experiential that happened between the people, which, again, gets back to the relational nature of organizational problem solving and creativity. Hmm. Wow, that's fascinating. So I'm, I'm thinking about... Um from a leadership perspective, if there are people listening who are wanting to, to sort of adopt more of a social slash relational leadership style, where would be the first place to look? Well, I would say, I mean, the, 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 the uh, one obvious answer is, um, I mean, I can speak, of course, to resources and authors and, and so forth. Too, yeah. Um, but I also would like to speak, if you're in a leadership position and you want to know where to start, start with the messiest part of your organization, <laughs> because, because that's where you're going. That's where, um, the relational teaching is going to start and dealing with those complex, messy problems and being able to open yourself up and jump in. Now that said... I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, I, yeah, I just was thinking of, um, in one of the articles on LinkedIn, you talked about, um, was it the people who are you know, unhappy with how things are, the f people who are frustrated and being able to talk to them about what's not going right or something to that effect. Was, can you, can you, is that part of what you're talking about? It is part of what I'm talking about because I'm, because yeah, I'm talking about this sort of sense-making experience and um, if you um, if you have pockets of resistance in the organization, ah, places yeah, where there pockets of resistance, you, you know what? If you want to know where your pockets of resistance are, just think about your organization and think about those areas, either those programs or um, the level of the organization where you might find yourself commenting that they quote unquote just don't get it. Because typically what you're going to find, if, if you're a leader and you're thinking about people in your organization that just don't get it, I can almost guarantee you, those people are looking at you thinking exactly. he or she just doesn't get it. Yeah. And so what you have there, and this gets back to what we were talking about earlier, what you have there is you have that the leader may have their own assumptions about reality and how things should operate. And you have the people on the front lines with their with a very different set of assumptions and understandings of reality and how it operates. And so you really have two different languages and being open and being willing to start to engage in 
psychologically safe dialogue is critical. Now, there are, uh, speaking, um, because you, you are asking um, about resources and so forth, one of the people I think, and you already mentioned her, is I think Brene Brown is um, an excellent, excellent source of, um, you know, knowledge and just um, expand, expansive thought on what's happening here. Um, and, and again, it's one of the things that I think we're, we're starting to see is that, um, leadership and leaders, um, need to branch out and start to draw from different resources in different fields and different domains, such as psychology, such as, um, social psychology, relational psychology. Um, and because that's, that's going to be the core of where we see the sort of the vanguard of leadership thought going is in that area and that human connection and that, that ability to come together at that level. So speaking of where we're going, I'm thinking about the future of work and how important these skills and this approach to leadership is going to become. Can you say what you see there? Sure. What I see is now I'm talking about relational, but, and, and again, it's like when you say future of work, of course, I can't help but think about all of the technological innovation that's happening. And really it's just getting started when you talk about um, artificial intelligence and um, robotics and quantum computing and things like that, and how those technologies are going to impact the workplace. Um, one of the things that I think is, is interesting is, I, again, I don't see it as this sort of either or, meaning that, um, you know, on the one hand, you might, you might want to think, well, it doesn't matter what we're doing with relationships because robots are going to take over anyway. And, uh, but I think in reality, in terms of looking at the future of work, there's going to be um, a growing interdependence between people and technology. And I think part of that interdependence is going to be in the ability to really work seamlessly, not just with us and technology, but with each other. So again, there's really um, uh, a new frame of thought coming up, and I would encourage people in leadership positions to really look beyond the traditional Western models of management and hierarchical organizations and look to those organizations and those examples of people that are developing a very organic, fluid, dynamic way of uh, meeting the uh, challenges that they're up against. I'd love it if you could say a bit about your vision of this paradigm shift of leadership that we're, I feel like we're kind of in the middle of, or maybe we're in the beginning, I'm not sure. What do you see is, is possible if we can make this shift and to be able to, you know, see reality in a different way, relate to each other in a different way. What's possible if we can if we can achieve those things? Well, I'm certainly um, not able to make any kind of concrete predictions, but I think yeah, what I'm is not possible. That, but, yeah. but but I think Tathra, here's what I think is important and exciting for me. Um, it's not even just what's possible and what, what can come and what to be. But um, I think that there is, think about this, because um, I just saw a study that um, workplace engagement is at an all-time low. And um, it's really, you know, people are dissatisfied with their jobs. They're dissatisfied with um, the relationships at work. They're dissatisfied with... Um, their relationship with the job itself. And what I think about is that moving forward, what it gives us an opportunity to do is evolve new ways of being in the workplace and new ways of understanding um, ourselves in um, an organizational situation that transcend the typical hierarchical mindset that underscores uh, most situations now most workplace um, dynamics and when you can free up that level of creativity I mean of course we're not we're not going to be able to make any definitive um, you know we, we can't 
definitively predict the future, but I think there's, um, like you say, there's these opportunities to create something different. And, and I've, I've interviewed quite a few people who have uh, talked about this, you know, the stat from Gallup around disengagement and people right. are dealing with it in different ways. Um, and, and what you're saying is very aligned with um, a lot of what other people have been, have been saying. Um, but I think you have a unique perspective in that you bring an awareness of it's not just, you know, here's how we should relate to each other. It's like, we're actually thinking about the world in a different way. We're, we have an emerging way of seeing reality and that there is, there's fear, there's, there's confusion, there's, you know, I mean, one of the things that I often see is that there's this idea of, uh, well, we don't really have an appetite for that. And ultimately, the, um, the subtext is, well, that's too hard. Right. And, and so I think, you know, when people are in these very traditional workplaces, and there's this idea of, well, we must create psychological safety, they're kind of thinking, oh, I don't know how to do that. But right. I think on a human level, it's actually much simpler than, than we think. Um, and, you know, I think you're right. Once we can open that up, our ability to be differently at work and, and for work to be, um, I just think, yeah, our experience of work can be different. And sure, it's going to be different because robots are going to be all, doing all the, 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 you know, the, the heavy thinking as well as the heavy lifting. Um, but yeah, what, what else, what else do you see? I don't, I, yeah, I don't think we realize how much energy we are expending into, uh, maintaining the defensiveness and the, um, uh, protectiveness that, um, it, uh, typifies, um, the average worker's experience, um, at his or her job. Um, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of energy. That's, that's why people I think are very, are so exhausted sometimes. I know that I've been in jobs where I, I come home at the end of the day and I'm exhausted, not from the uh, task requirements of the job itself, but of the sort of mental posturing and the mental maneuvering that I had to do throughout the day in order to deal with the rules and the personalities that's the exhausting that, part. What what kind of impact does that have on productivity? Do you think? I think it 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 it. I want to say diminishes, but it feels sometimes like it eliminates it. It makes actually productivity and uh, creative problem solving. It it makes it nearly impossible. It's almost like we have our foot on the the gas and the and brake pedals at exactly the same time, and um, so I think that. Um, there's there's tremendous ability like one of the things that i talk about when i'm um, working with consulting clients is um, the ability to break through these barriers so that organizations can begin to do great things in order to create the spark of human engagement and i think that that's um i think we see that in in little blips and little pieces we can point to certain organizations like like google or apple it's or um you know zappos i'm not sure what's going on with zappos these days they're sort of in transition but um certain organizations where it feels like there's such free thinking and there's such uh such an abundance of uh you know creative thought going around I feel like there's a big opportunity here for organizations to to move out of this sort of stuckness and and this this way of being both you know foot on accelerator and the, and the the brake at the same time. And when you're going into organizations, I'm imagining there's that resistance, there's that anxiety, that fear, but but also when when it, they're looking at what it is that they need to face and to to you know become a little bit more fair across psychology and um, you know what motivates people and and how to create things like psychological safety. What kind of um, are you finding much resistance? Like do, do people kind of look at it and go, oh, that's that's a bit scary. I'm not sure I can really go there. I do to a certain degree, but one of the things that I, that I kind of um, try to find out early on is how open these organizations and leaders are to adopting uh, alternative or um, a, a different view of the world, a different mindset, different worldview. 
because typically so you, got kind of a you got to qualify. People I do. I try to qualify because what I find is that it's um, especially these days because everything seems so tenuous and there's so much fear going around. Um, and there are organizations where they just want the problems eliminated and they just want to go back to fixed structures, fixed ways of doing things, compliance, um, command and control. And um, when I feel that out, I know automatically that's not a place for me um, because that's not what I have to offer. And um, so what I'm looking for... Mm. Sorry, go I was, ahead. I was just going to ask you, what's your, what's your ideal scenario? Like, what's the perfect kind of, of organization that is ready for this kind of work to be able to move through these barriers? First and foremost, I like to look for people who feel that they want to change the world. And um, that's the Great. first I thing that. I always look for is um, that ability to make an impact on the world. Second, what I look at is the ability with the people I'm talking with to look within themselves and to see their own psyches as being a part, a piece of what is being reflected outward in the organization as a whole. So I look for individuals, I look for leaders who are most interested in making that connection between their own personal growth and the organization growth. And Fantastic. from right, and then from that, I really um, start to educate them on the larger shifts that are going on now in our world. And I don't just mean with um, technology and the digitization of workplace uh, interactions. What I'm talking about are the sort of the broader shifts that are happening um, in our history and to the point where we are now really starting to, we're really on the cusp of um, uh, tremendous turns, tremendous shifts in the history of humanity. And I think organizations are going to be critical in charting the course forward and developing those um, relational processes that allow new ways of thinking to unfold. And I think that's really critical. So, and, but um, I think it's also important to recognize that that is a messy process. So what I offer people is the ability to partner with them in order to walk through step-by-step step those processes in order to develop and unearth the new thinking and the new type of problem solving that resides right in their organizations at this very moment. So exciting. So one final question, uh, and I ask all my guests this um, in slightly different ways. Given this new way of thinking and being in the world, and with people who have an idea, a business, a book, a project, a creative initiative, they want to bring out into the world, but are a bit reluctant and are, are experiencing these sort of, you know, pushback from the old ways of thinking. What advice do you have for people in being able to, to stand out, step up? A friend of mine told me something a long time ago that um, I've carried with me and has really made the biggest difference. And it sounds very simplistic, but uh, I think it's been sort of one of the greatest sources of um, my creativity, and that is go where you are celebrated. Find the people, find your tribe. Even if that, even if you're, you're looking to make a big splash um, in the business world um, and you, you, you can't find an inroad, find some place or find a group where you can think and be expressed and be validated because I think there's tremendous power in that because I think a lot of us, especially I think if they're listening to your podcast, Tathra, I think that um, everybody has an experience of being a bit on the outside and it's, it's a tremendous fight and it's a tremendous, it, it can be a tremendous struggle at times to really hold on to your gifts and your, you know, your, your inner resilience in situations like that. So really, Find a group, find a mentor, find a friend, find a, find a, a Facebook group where your ideas are valued. I was going to say, perhaps even on social media, because for some of us, you know, in, I mean, I live in a large city in, in um, you know, in Australia, and I'm, I'm blessed that I'm in this environment where there are, there's a lot of forward thinkingness 
and I still struggle to connect to that. But I think um, social media can give us different kinds of opportunities to find our tribe. Any, any thoughts on that? I think that's exactly right. I mean, and that's, I can just tell you that's been my experience and that journey, it never ends because I've been active now on social media for probably about um, eight years. And um, what I find is that the opportunities continue to multiply exponentially. So I'm, I just think it's a very exciting time for a lot of us. Absolutely. Well, that seems like a great, great spot to end. So thanks very much for um, being with us on Tall Poppy today, David. Thank you, Tathra. It was a pleasure to be here. Yeah, this was another conversation that really excites me. It brings together the different elements around dealing with disruption and what's important, but also stuff I hadn't considered, like the ways that we look at the world and reality that's no longer serving us. And being able to add to that layer of insight puts our relationship to each other, our work and technology in a different light. Mostly we're stumbling through this new and rapidly changing world, but when we can see how we're seeing it, observing our worldview and mindset, it illuminates where some of our behaviors come from, such as our desire for simple answers to complex questions, and it makes sense of our sense-making and can offer insights for how to deal with this ambiguous and uncertain world in the midst of what really is a huge paradigm shift. I'm really excited about David's work and the implications for how we face the future. And I love his take on social media, it challenged how I relate to it and helped me see the benefits kind of in a new way because I usually think of it as something that I spend too much time on and secretly am grateful for the source of connection it provides, but not being open about it because it's not you know real connection. But what is real connection anyways? What you know Is it about being in the same room as someone or is it about the impact of the interaction? So yeah, clearly some assumptions to check there. So what can we take to heart from this conversation? How does ongoing disruption impact your work and life? How are you dealing with it? How's your organization dealing with it? And what about psychological safety? Is that something that you experience with your team? If you manage a team, how are you contributing to or hindering their sense of psychological safety? And what could you do to make a difference there? What's the quality of your relationships? Does the culture of your organization leave people feeling exhausted from posturing and performance anxiety? You know, that stuff is likely to be really subtle, but have a think about the impact on both the people behaving that way due to the environment and how it kills engagement, not to mention productivity. It's, it really is heartbreaking, but it's probably also really widespread. And it feels overwhelming even just to think about it, but perhaps this awareness, you know, being able to see it is the start of something new. What can you see as possible? What excites you about this? I reckon David Holzmer is one to watch. This guy is going to make waves. And maybe your organization could benefit from getting in touch with him. You can find the links in the show notes. And look, there's much more that I would love to unpack here, but I'll leave it at that for now. There's just a couple of other things I want to share with you briefly about a connection that I made through Tall Poppy. A listener connected with me on LinkedIn, and we discovered that we live in the same suburb of Melbourne. So we met at a local cafe and had a great conversation, which actually might lead to an interview here. So stay tuned for that. And this really feeds into what David was saying with his Tall Poppy advice, but also about social media, where you know, being the place where you find your tribe. Sometimes they're across the planet and sometimes they're in the same suburb as you. So why don't you reach out to the people that celebrate you, where you can express yourself, be yourself, and talk about the things that light you up. And feel free to contact me via social media. I'd love to hear from you. With Tathra Street being a reasonably unusual name, I'm easy to find. So it's spelled T-A-T-H-R-A-S-T-R. Double E-T. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, occasionally Twitter, um, and Instagram too. My website has the links to my social profiles as well. Uh, that's at tathrastreet.com. And you can also find past and future episodes at tathrastreet.com forward slash podcast.
If you go to the links in the episode guide, you can get each episode's show notes and all the links to what was mentioned in the interview, plus how to find the guest. So like, you know, David's LinkedIn profile, for example. Oh, and something that came out of my catch-up with the local listener was that if you're on an iPhone listening from the podcasts app, if you want to get to the show notes, you tap the image that says Tall Poppy, and you may need to scroll down to where it says See Full Description to get the links, but it may depend on the version of the iOS that you're using. So a couple of final bits. Another LinkedIn win. Knowing that um, we have quite a few listeners in New Zealand, Japan, and Germany, I'm on the lookout for guests from those countries and open to suggestions. So there was a post on LinkedIn asking for a motivational speaker and a contact who I respect suggested a woman from New Zealand. And so I looked at her profile, I contacted her, and we're arranging for an interview. So I was pretty stoked about that. Lastly, a note on upcoming episodes. Next week, we geek out on productivity with Evernote guru Charles Bird and explore technology in service of humanity. And if you've listened to my backstory, you may remember me saying that Catherine Malloy is the best boss I've ever had, and that interview is in the pipe as well. Plus another one that I'm super excited about, talking to Gus Harvey from Future Crunch about intelligent optimism and all the great innovations that are making a difference to life on Earth. So much good stuff coming up. And hey, if you found any of this interesting or valuable, the best thing you can do to help the Tall Poppy community grow is help your fellow listeners make an informed choice about listening by leaving a review, just, just a few words, or sharing this episode and, or any other via social media as you see fit. So thanks again for listening to Tall Poppy and being part of this community that looks at leadership differently and acknowledges this changing paradigm of leadership, seeing the impact of our mindset our worldview, and our own leadership, regardless of our role at work, in business, and life. Thanks for listening. See you on the flip side.